one morning I was taking the tube to go to the bank and I bumped into a friend who said, Hey, you should watch this TED talk. That's the first thing I did in the morning. And it was showing how he was using livestock to turn very desertified landscapes back into green, lush pastures. By the time the talk was done, I knew that was going to be where I would focus. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Derby Podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode in which I talk with Chuck de Niederkerk, who used to be an investment banker for Morgan Stanley in London. He turned entrepreneur in the regenerative agriculture space. In this episode, we do talk about what is regenerative agriculture, what uh, type of solution it is to climate change, and also what the difference with organic agriculture. But much more importantly, and much more interestingly, we dive into his story to understand what happened from the moment when he walked into his boss's office to quit, to actually start his business and now being the CEO of the business with 28 people. Chuck, pleasure to have you here on the, the podcast. And to get us started, can you describe what you do? Sure. Thanks for having me, Greg. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Soil Capital, an ag tech firm that works with farmers to uh, transition their approach to regenerative agriculture and in the process, hopefully fix the planet. Um, the solution we provide to them is a software that helps them understand their carbon footprint improve it and generate uh, carbon credits, which is a new revenue stream for them and will uh, enable the buyers of those carbon credits to actually have a positive contribution to the environment. Wow. Okay. That's a big, uh, that's a big mission, solving the, the planet, sorting the, and I, I wonder what gives you the most satisfaction? in your job? Quite a few things, actually. In no particular order, the team, I think um, working with people that are deeply committed is hugely gratifying every day. I say committed, but it's also, it's more than just committed. Very competent people who are, who are committed. That's really meaningful. The second thing I'd say is the impact. After many years of iterating and trying to understand how we could get farmers to shift from a conventional farming approach to a regenerative approach in a way that doesn't make them cringe, but that actually shows them that they're profiting from the system more than they were previously and showing what the outcome is in terms of carbon impact, but also other benefits like improvement of biodiversity and, and others is greatly rewarding. Sure. We'll talk about it uh, a bit later, but in these past 12 months, it's really been the first time we've been able to measure with 150 farmers that we work with, how they're improving on their carbon footprint. And it's meaningful. And seeing that progress is, is, is fantastic, very rewarding. And I'd say the last, the last piece, which is maybe a little bit more down to earth is seeing an, an idea that originally was just a small concept in, in, in my mind, be become more and more successful. Uh, yeah. Maybe two, two follow-up questions to this. You said you're shifting the way farmers are perceiving the idea of 
farming with a regenerative. Can you just explain a little bit what's that shift for them or what, what are you enabling for them? Maybe it's worth in the first instance to mention uh, what we mean by regenerative farming. And the best way to start is by explaining what regenerative farming is not. It is not mining the soil for its fertility. It is not providing fertility from outside of the system through chemical fertilizers and external inputs. And that, that is more commonly described as an extractive type of agriculture. And as opposed to extractive, we say regenerative. And what regenerative agriculture does, it leverages what nature does spontaneously, which is grow stuff. Nature grows stuff. And so if we can understand the processes with which nature grows stuff, and if we can encourage and foster those processes, then maybe we don't need that many chemical inputs and we don't need the, the brute force approach that we're taking today in agriculture as much. When I oppose extractive agriculture and regenerative agriculture, I'm not necessarily opposing conventional agriculture and, and regenerative agriculture. I think a lot of farmers today are already using regenerative agriculture in, in some shape or form. What do I mean by this? Simply today, the farmers have an interest in improving soil function. Farmers have an interest in making sure that their agro ecosystem is, is thriving. And the way they ensure this is pretty, pretty common today. The use of cover crops, the minimization of land disturbance, the diversifications of species in a cropping system, but also diversification with livestock, the substitution of agrochemical inputs with organic inputs. All of these levers are regenerative in, in and of themselves. Uh, but what most farmers still think today is that between regenerative and conventional or extractive, I would say, there's a trade-off. There's a trade-off between profitability on the one hand and environmental outcomes on the other. And it's not just farmers, by the way, everybody thinks this, the public, the media, policymakers, investors, and the way this is every time you talk about regenerative agriculture, someone will tell you. Yes, but that means I need to accept lower profits or lower yields, at least for a period of time. And what we're really about at Soil Capital is trying to convince all of these people, but the farmers first, that actually, no, if nature's role is to grow stuff and we can help nature do its job better, then normally we can be more, more productive by spending less money. Farmers already care about the land today. Even if they're conventional farmers, us city folk, when we, we sometimes judge farmers harshly and quickly. And I think farmers, they make the choices they can make given the food we eat. And we are part of the food system that drives the farmers to make the choices they do. And one thing we really try to do at Soil Capital is keep from judging farmers and tell them, let's just look at your interests. And if your interests are to care for your land, to make more money to feed more people and to enjoy your life better, then maybe regenerative agriculture is something for you. Regenerative agriculture is good for the farmers. My gut tells me you didn't get into regenerative agriculture to help farmers. And, and you said at the beginning, I want to, I want to help sort the planet. 
how does it help? 40% of land today on the planet is dedicated to agriculture. So that's 40% of the landscapes of the planet that we are impacting, that man is impacting. And we're impacting it pretty hard because on average for industrialized countries, we're emitting about one and a half, two tons a hectare on each of those hectares, 40% of the planet. But again, remember what nature does, it grows stuff. And the way it grows stuff is through photosynthesis. It takes the carbon from the atmosphere, it builds it into the vegetation, the vegetation returns it to the soil, and the carbon remains, for lack of a better word, in the soil. It's a carbon cycle, so actually it cycles faster. But there's a potential to, to, to have each of those hectares adding carbon to the soil rather than emitting year on year carbon into the atmosphere. And if you look at what, how big agri or, or, or what's the share of agriculture in carbon emissions today, it's around 20%. 20% of man-made emissions, carbon emissions, greenhouse gas emissions come from agriculture. Now let's assume that we could take those 20%, those one and a half, two tons a hectare and cancel them out be carbon neutral. We would save 20% of carbon emissions every year. That's 20% of the solution. But actually we can do more because we can store carbon through farming, which by the way, is a way to improve the resilience of our food system because a soil that is rich in carbon is a fertile soil. The difference between a desert and brown soil is carbon and fertility. So you add to food security, food resilience in a context of increasing extreme weather events, that's meaningful. You prevent erosion, which means you clean waters as well as preserve fertility. You improve biodiversity through regenerative agriculture. You, you improve the soil's water holding capacity in a context where Europe has known massive floods. That's meaningful as well. And that's what I was originally excited about. And I didn't really care for the farmers when I started soil capital, but I did come over a period of now, now nine years, come to realize that the farmers are the only ones that are going to deliver the chain. And so if we're not at the service of the farmers, then we're never going to achieve the change we want to see. The good news is that there's a very compelling reason for farmers to, to go regenerative and that's what we're trying to promote. And just for the record, for our listeners, what's the difference between regenerative agriculture and organic agriculture? Because they're probably more familiar with this sort of label. Organic agriculture will be agriculture that doesn't use synthetic inputs, but you can plow the land. You can have a monoculture. You can even use heavy metals like copper, which is definitely not good for your health in organic agriculture. It doesn't mean you always do, and doesn't mean you're doing bad stuff to the ecosystem when you're organic, but having the label organic doesn't prove that you're actually fixing the soil's natural fertility. Regenerative can sometimes use organic inputs. Most regenerative farmers will actually use some synthetic inputs, but they will solve for soil health first. And there's a big debate about 
whether we should prefer organic or regenerative. I think where we're trying to get to is a organic regenerative agriculture. And there's a, a label that's been developed um, by Patagonia and Dr. Bromers and, and, and other mission-driven businesses that's doing great stuff in that field. But it's not easy to be an organic regenerative farmer for agronomic reasons. I'd love to, to shift the, the conversation. The, the last thing you mentioned uh, in terms of the satisfaction that what you do today brings you is having, having brought to reality an idea. Can we go back in time as far back as you want to share with us where does this idea come from? Yeah. I think there, there are two moments in my life, two moments in my life where this idea formed itself. The first one was when I was an investment banker in, in London and working hard, as is often the case, on a deal that at the time didn't go through. And I was pretty upset because I had worked very hard on it. I walked into my boss's office and I said, look, I think this job is bullshit. I want to leave. There's nothing here for me. And the, my boss told me, sure, leave. Life's too short. You shouldn't, you shouldn't stay, but ask yourself one question. What do you want to do? And I, I paused and I stayed for quite a while in the bank afterwards because I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I realized that was the first question I needed to answer what was what do I want to do? And, and that, that stuck with me for a long time. How did it feel not to know what to do, what you wanted to do? Actually, it felt quite good because all of a sudden I realized what I needed to work on. I realized I needed to find something about myself that really got me going. And so I knew where I could focus my attention. And by the way, the what I, the best answer I could come up with, which was in no way satisfactory, but it was good enough at the time was I want to be a solution to a meaningful problem. That, that's, that was a very large frame, but what do you do when you've said that? There's nothing there. Check, but I, I, I want to dive on this because that that's quite important. So you wanted to be a solution to a meaningful problem and you found this out on that very evening when you went into your boss's no it took a bit more time i'd say it, it, took, it took a few weeks it happened when i was having a few drinks with a, with a friend actually i didn't rush it and the phrase stuck with me but didn't provide me with any more than just a very wide frame so for me it didn't fix anything but it was just there it was hanging so it didn't fix anything no i still didn't know what i wanted to do it's the reason why I started watching more and more TED Talks. And, but I didn't realize it immediately. So I've always been an avid viewer of TED Talks for as long as they've existed. But I found myself watching several TED Talks a day and then thinking, why am I doing this? Why am I wasting my time? looking at all of these different topics that are really interesting. There's a great TED talk about the intelligence of crows. And then there's a TED talk about string theory. And then there's a TED talk about body language. And all of these are fascinating, but so what does this have to do with my life? 
And why am I spending so much time in front of the screen, uh, taking interest in topics that aren't going to fundamentally impact me? And, and I realized something that I was waiting for a TED talk to change my life. And I thought that was a nice repository of good ideas and meaningful projects where I could find something. And that's exactly what happened. One morning I was taking the tube to go to, go to the bank and I, I bumped into a friend who said, Hey, you should watch this TED talk. It's really got me thinking. And that's the first thing I did in the morning. I, I, the TED talk was called how to re-green deserts and reverse climate change by Alan Savory. And it was showing how he was using livestock to mimic the patterns of migratory herds and restore the link of symbiosis between the land and the animals and build natural fertility and, and turn very desertified landscapes back into green, lush pastures. And at that moment, everything clicked into place. And that was super, I, I love talking about it. I've, I've never talked about it this way, but it was very meaningful because I realized if you can re-green landscapes, you can store more carbon in the soil because that's what photosynthesis does for you. You can make land that's not productive and therefore worthless, productive and valuable again. You can provide people with livelihood and food where there was none before. You can bring nature back where there was no nature. And remember that valuable piece, if you take non-valuable land and turn it into valuable land, then you have a business case. And if you have a business case, then you can scale. And if you can scale a solution that fixes the planet, that you can actually fix the planet. And by the time the talk was done, I knew that was going to be where I would focus. Wow. Yeah. And I pulled the thread from there. Eventually there were a lot of very happy coincidences and I was really lucky because it turns out that I actually had a relationship, indirect relationship with the person who introduced Alan Savory, the TED speaker to Chris Anderson at TED. And that person was actually investing in regenerative agriculture solutions. And he was one of the first people to support me when I created Soil Capital with my partner, Nicholas. And, and even meeting my business partner, Nicholas, was a happy coincidence. So there, was, there were a lot of confirmatory signs that this was the right thing, but the decision was really the TED Talk. Right. You said everything clicked. Can you describe it a little more? What made it click? I think you always have objections to why you shouldn't do something you're considering. And, um, sometimes those objections are really deeply seated in your mind. And one of, um, one of my objections was 
saving the world isn't profitable. And if I want to have, actually saving the world is doomed to fail. That's what I thought. Because every initiative that saves the world eventually fizzles out. And we haven't seen nonprofits quit because their mission was done. We've seen a lot of nonprofits endure and keep asking for money because they reinvent their mission, et cetera. But then I spent a lot of time in the nonprofit world before I went to banking. And I've see, I saw that it was a world that is just as political and just as money-driven as any other world. And I'd even argue that I didn't believe in the nonprofit world anymore because money's not the common denominator anymore. Everyone takes their own moral high ground. And so you have these different visions that are competing to solve the same problem, but there's no hard and fast criteria to understand which solution is better. And so I, I guess I, what I mean by that is I believe that the market economy, as imperfect as it may be, and it is imperfect, does some form of value. And if we can attach that value to real environmental solutions, then, then potentially we can scale a real solution. And so what clicked in my mind is actually here's a way to find, here's a way to lift an objection that, you know, solutions to save the world won't work. This could actually work. That's really what clicked for me. And another thing that clicked with me, which is much more personal is I was spending my whole life indoors. I met, I'm a city guy. I love the outdoors for hobbies. I go rock climbing. I go, I go skiing. I, I, I go for hikes. I, I love this type of stuff, but I don't have, I would say, an, an operational relationship with nature. And I was sick of that. I was sick of taking the tube every morning to see more city landscapes, never really see a natural horizon. I loved the moments when I was taking the train, commuting from Brussels to London early in the morning on, on a Monday morning and seeing the, the countryside outside and thinking, wow, I'd much rather be there than in this train. And I realized that I could dedicate my life to the cause that I liked, but also that process would be very rewarding because I would spend more time in nature. And so that was also a huge win factor for me. I spend much more time in front of a computer today than I thought I would, but, but I still spend meaningful moments um, with farmers and that's more than enough in terms of nature exposure, I'd say. So you went to your boss's office, you wanted to resign. How long after did you resign in the end? Probably a year and a half after. So it, there were, there was about give or takes six to nine months between the moment I realized I need to figure out what I needed to figure out what to do and the moment I actually saw the TED talk. And then between the moment and I saw the TED talk and I actually resigned, there was also six six to nine months and actually more because my boss was extremely decent with me. He let me take a sabbatical to, to explore what I wanted to do. And, and it was only after the sabbatical that I resigned. And what made you actually hand out your resignation? So once you have a big idea, I think it's important to be as realistic and as strict as possible on what the conditions for success are going to be. And. I said, I'm not going to resign if I don't have a business partner. 
that knows more about this stuff than I do, because I don't know anything about agriculture and an investor that is willing to put money with us because he believes in, in this idea. And it shouldn't be just a friend. It should be someone who knows the sector as well. And so from the moment I started exploring this idea, I knew I wanted these kind of people with me. And fortunately I found my business partner really quickly through, as I said, happy coincidences. And we started discussing about how could we capture some of the value that regenerative agriculture would create. My business partner, partner, by the way, is a farmer and an agronomist and an advisor to regenerative transitions and has been for the past 30 years. And he and I started just writing our ideas down in a document that eventually became a pretty long 20 odd page document with ideas we would go back to over and over again. And finally, we thought that it would be a good idea to create a fund and buy degraded farmland. And so when that was one part of the, that was one part of the, the effort. The other effort was me trying to understand what regenerative agriculture really was and what we did immediately with my partner is we thought if we want to understand this word, if I city person want to understand this better, probably other people do as well. And, and so we, we decided it would be a good idea to create a conference or to organize a conference in London with regenerative farmers that we'd invite from around the world. It cost us a lot of money, but we brought in pioneer regenerative farmers from the US, from Canada, from Brazil, Australia, France, and the UK. I think I'm not forgetting anywhere. And they were about eight or nine regenerative farmers in this conference. We co-organized this with Deloitte of all organizations who was very happy to host such an event and the room was packed and having these farmers around us really afforded us a lot of credibility, a lot of learnings as well, because we learned a lot of, in terms of what made the business case for regenerative agriculture. And that's really what convinced us that we should start investing in degraded farmland, regenerated, and then either generate cash flows off that land as a going concern or sell it to regenerative farmers down the road once we had done the hard work. But none of that actually happened. We set up the fund, we got a few investors to put money in, and then another opportunity came around. And so we never actually invested any money. And when I say we created the fund, we incorporated the fund manager, but never actually the raised, we raised capital for the fund. But the idea was, okay, could, do we have a model that's credible enough to actually get us to do something concrete and deliver impact. And that, that was, that was that first idea. And, and that's when you, is this when you resigned? I resigned when the investor said yes to putting money into our structure. Well, maybe tell us a bit about mentally, emotionally, how was that? The beginning was fantastic. 
I felt so, I was my own boss. All of a sudden I could dedicate my time to a topic I was fully interested in. It made sense to me. I thought and still think my business partner is great. And we were getting all these small signs of validation, but you know, we were doing was at least interesting, not profitable, but at least interesting. We would get invitations from other investors who wanted to hear what we were doing. We were, we were getting approached by some people that wanted to start working with us. They were very small signs, but they confirmed us that we were in the right place. And that's how I, that's how I felt free and validated. And I have to say, I free, free. I didn't, I can't say I've been feeling free the whole time. Validated, definitely. I don't know if I'm lucky, but I, there's never been a doubt in my mind that this is the right field to be in. Whether the business model is exactly right, I'm sure it's not. Whether our choices are the best ones, I'm sure they're not. But I know that we're headed in the right direction. And that's the validation part. And then that, I, that's the reason why I don't want to ever quit this job. But, but I think it, it, yeah, it's important to be professional. It's important to adapt. It's important to doubt. And all of that happened eventually. You have this really, at least in my case, this, this moment of huge freedom. But after that, there's this moment, okay, what are we actually going to be doing? We're going to raise a fund, fine, but what are, going to, what are we going to invest in? Where? In the world. We chose Australia for God knows what reason, because it was the furthest place away from the UK, as we could imagine. <laughs> but we traveled quite a bit to Australia and met some really interesting farmers there and visited some really interesting places there. And we even found an investment opportunity, which we thought was amazing. And we started um, showcasing that opportunity to our investors. And, and that's actually where we, we had our first pivot. And I think that's the moment where, again, and we were really lucky here. We didn't have to doubt before we, we pivoted. I can explain this. Basically we met an investor. We were pitching the Australian investment idea to him. And he said, you guys are fairly young. You're going to spend 10, 15 years raising a fund that's big enough for you to meaning, have a meaningful impact on the planet. I have a portfolio of farms across the world, which is several hundred, hundred millions of dollars invested in this portfolio. Would you like to manage it for me? And this was an opportunity that was too good to turn down, frankly. And so from one day to the next, we dropped the idea of becoming a, a fund to becoming the managers of this farm portfolio with a great mandate from that investor to transition that portfolio from conventional farming to regenerative farming. And you know a bit about this because that's when we started talking about regenerative agriculture. Yep. Yep. So you did this for a while, for how many years did you do this? Three years. And then we realized that we weren't going to scale in the way we wanted to. 
not because of the business itself, but because of the nature of what we were doing. We were managing farmland. And for one organization, there's just so much farmland you can manage. The biggest farmland management companies out there probably manage a million hectares. I doubt there's are portfolios that manage much more than that. Maybe there are. But a million hectares in the big scheme of things, there are 5 billion hectares of arable land worldwide. That's nothing. Agriculture still belongs to family farms, family farmers. And we realized that if we wanted to change farming, we needed to speak with farmers, not manage hectares. And that's when we decided to resign from the management of that portfolio. Mm -hmm. And so we went back to the soil capital drawing board and said, what's, how do we talk to farmers? And that's when we really realized that we needed to be at the service of farmers rather than just managing farmland. I'd like to dig into what you said about, well, I felt free at the beginning. I'm not sure I felt free all along. Can you talk a little more about this? Yeah, how to put it in a way that doesn't sound scary, because it's not scary. I've committed to a team. I've committed to a business model. It's more than just committing to a mission. Committing to the mission, which is I want to be part of a solution to a meaningful problem through regenerative agriculture. That's still really broad. But after several pivots, we realized at some point we need to stop pivoting. We hopefully one point we'll find a moment where we'll stop pivoting. And hopefully we will be on a trajectory that will deliver the best impact we feel we can actually deliver. And I think we're there. We've been there now for the past two years. This is, and by the way, I think we had very extreme pivots over a period of six, six, seven years. And so when you look at soil capital, it looks like a startup today, but it used to want it to be an investment fund at some point. It was a farmland management company at another point. We've had many lives and, and there's one thing I realize is you shouldn't be afraid to make radical pivots, but once you've made them and once you've found something that resonates with your mission and proves that it can deliver on that mission, you commit to it. And, and now, yeah, I am, I, I, we're a team of 28 people now. They have, all of these people have specific roles in which they're good at. We can't, I can't reinvent the business model every Monday now, which is something I love to do. I need to execute on a plan that we've put together and that we're, we keep putting together every day. That's where I feel less free. I guess what that means is I probably feel very comfortable as a zero to one founder. When we have a broad idea of what we were a very general idea of what we want to do, we need to find the sweet spot. And once the sweet spot is fine, now is the test moment for me to understand how I execute on that. And it's a new challenge. That's a new challenge. And freedom is no longer part of it. I feel great. I feel more validated than ever, but I feel committed more than I feel free. Mm -hmm. I just want to touch on, on one thing that we alluded to at the very beginning, which was you mentioned, well, I needed to find a business partner because I didn't know much about this field. 
I was getting into. What was it about it that was so important? A few things. First of all, there was the first business partner, Nicholas, and we have a, a second co-founder or a third co-founder, if you will, who uh, still lives in London. His name is Alex and he's CFO of the business today. And it wasn't just Nicholas and myself, it's the three of us. And I think the reason I'm saying this is because I find it's really important to understand what you can't do and where your weaknesses are and where you need to be supported. In my case, I know nothing about farming and I wanted to work in farming. Might as well find a farmer to do it, or at least to work alongside me. And if we have a shared vision, if we see eye to eye, then we can do interesting stuff together. And also another part of my personality is I'm not very systematic. I'm not very organized. As I say, I reinvent the business model every Monday and my whole team teases me on it. I try not to do it, but, um, I'm not that disciplined. And it became clear that if this business was going to be successful, we needed those skills. And so that, that's one of the key reasons why Alex came in as CFO is we needed the full skill set very quickly to make sure that our business was going to be a, a success. And we needed to see eye to eye. That's really important. And again, these, ma these matches with both Nicholas and, and Alex, my, my co-founders are very meaningful because we got along so well, we still do on these topics. It's not easy all the time. Obviously after seven, eight, nine years, personalities get, get on your nerves sometimes. But more often than not, we, we function very well together and we have complementary skills and that's useful. I think what was nice as well is we didn't create this business with friends. We became friends after we created the business and, and having created a business before my banking days with a friend, I know how dangerous that can be both for the business and for the friendship. I've got a few more questions for you and, and we can make them rapid fire or as the first question is who's you already mentioned in inspiration, Alan Savory with the TED talk, but I, I wonder who else has inspired you on your journey? Yeah, I would say I take a lot of, um, learnings from entrepreneur from Patagonia, a huge inspiration, dedication to the, to his mission, the cause itself, the thought that he put into what is the purpose of a business? You know, I think this idea of purpose is central. It's the reason why I, I chose this job. Being a part of a solution to a meaningful problem is all about purpose, right? And I think that Trina has understand, has understood this more than, and been better than most people. You know, what's the purpose of working in a FinTech or a, a phone company? I'm not saying there's none. I'm saying people need to know what their purpose is. And then I knew where my purpose was here. It was really clear. And I think with no false modesty, our purpose is more apparent than many other businesses. That's why people want to come and work for us. So Trina, big inspiration. Then I take a lot of tips from other founders in the tech world. 
I don't take everything from them because I have, I can't say I have no misgivings about these people, but definitely they say interesting stuff. Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, they say a lot of interesting stuff about innovation mm -hmm. and innovation is part of our job now. So I, I take that. One of my big inspirations is my grandfather, who was a professor, uh, university professor and one of the first people to study corporate social responsibility and the purpose of a business. His name is Philippe de Wart. That's D-E-W-O-T for, if you ever, you're, you're interested in looking him up. Yeah, I, I, sorry for hesitating. You could cut that out, but I think it's important to say I, I am religious and I, I think I'd say Christ is an inspiration in, 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 in his own way. I think it's, there's this one guy I think about all the time, but I name him if I, if I tried, he had a TED talk and the only message of his TED talk was, can you try to leave, if you try to leave every room, you come in better than when you arrived, then you'll end up making the world better than when you arrived. And that really stuck with me. And it, I don't know, but he's an inspiration as well. I love that, that image. Yeah. Just one room, one at a time makes a difference yeah. and adds up in the end. What's, what's the most important lesson from your journey? Don't be afraid to change your mind. Don't be afraid to be wrong. Actually, you should love to be wrong. It makes you vulnerable. It makes you approachable. It puts you in a mindset where you can capture everything that's true around you. So it, it enables us to pivot and become right. One of the things that we embrace at Soil Capital is mistakes. We, we celebrate mistakes. By the way, this was inspired by Elon Musk. Uh, he says he fires people who don't make mistakes. I think it, it's really important to realize that we are going to make mistakes, that they're unavoidable. But to feel really comfortable in making, because that's where we're going to learn the most. And, and fear of being wrong and fear of mistakes, on the other hand, is so damaging and dangerous to people and organizations. And people check in 90% of their personalities at the door before walking into an office because they're afraid of being wrong or not being exactly the right person they need to be. That's bullshit. People are going to be wrong all of the time, even more if they leave 90% of their personalities at the door. So I, and that's something I learned from investment banking, by the way. What I like about finance is that the numbers will speak. And so you can't argue against math, right? And so you have a lot of very sophisticated, intelligent people, validated people because they have great jobs, et cetera. But uh, most of the times, most of these people are happy to change their mind simply on a number because the number didn't match what they were expecting. And investment banking told me that it was okay to be wrong. And when you look back at your journey, what's been most rewarding? The team. 100% the team. Yeah. To, to see people so driven by this, by this purpose, to actually be able to 
realize that you can, that I can disappear from soil capital and it would still work okay. because people have a very strong sense of ownership and purpose in this business. And it, it makes a lot of sense to them. Um, and I'm hugely grateful for that because I don't know, I don't, I don't know how we did it, but it works and people are super committed. And I don't think I'm a great leader of people, by the way. I really don't. I'm, I, I'm really the life of the party. I'm not a good listener. I have my own ideas and I change my mind all the time and I don't want to listen to other people. And, and my, I know my two co-founders are just as focused on the mission as I am. And that's a bigger priority than the well-being of the team. So we didn't design our organization to have a great team, but we have a great team. And I think a lot of that has to do with the people that came after, and maybe a little bit with the fact that we embraced being yeah, I feel a lot of humility when I hear you talk about your weaknesses and the ego steps away, you know, when you're ready to being wrong and, and you accept your weaknesses and, and your shortcomings, and that helps people be accepted in the space with their own shortcomings and, and mistakes. Yeah, I'm a big believer in vulnerability because it, it enables us to be honest and recognize, it enables us to recognize that we're not perfect. Usually we find ourselves in defensive mode because, because we're not perfect and we try to justify why we're not perfect. The moment you accept and embrace that you're vulnerable, it makes it so much easier to be honest yeah. and say, we're trying. I'm sure that in our, in the way we're scaling regenerative agriculture, many things are wrong, but hopefully there are a few things that are right. There are vulnerabilities, but I think. We become stronger when we recognize them, when we own up to them. What's been most challenging? At the beginning, it was lack of credibility. When you start a business, especially in a field, which at the time was much less known than it is today, regenerative agriculture, I guess that's, that's challenging. People think that it's a nice idea, but they don't really follow up on, on the conversations. Lack of credibility is, was challenging. It's no longer an issue. What's an issue today, what's the most challenging thing today is it's a market that's moving really fast in many directions. So science is progressing every day on how we calculate farmers' environmental impact policy is changing. Competition is all around us. And we need to stay tuned in to all of these different drivers of change while we're still a startup. Is there anything else that you wish you had said that we didn't cover yet? Maybe one thing, which is uh, not a pleasant thing to say, but I think it's important. If you are, the world is full of meaningful problems and urgent problems that really need solving. And if you're in a position where you're well-educated and you have options in your career and you're not tackling one of these problems in some way, 
I'm sorry to say that you're part of the problem. We really need to put our minds together to solve huge challenge challenges. If we don't want our children to grow up in very difficult circumstances. And I'm worried about that. And soil capital or even agriculture isn't going to do, isn't going to solve these issues on its own. So I, I encourage people to, to think about how they can become part of a, a solution to a meaningful problem. Doesn't necessarily need to be climate change. There are many other problems today. Just open the papers. But I think the world needs, we need solutions for the future on so many topics. I, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to uh, speak too much about it, but I, I, I do. That would be my message. Thank you. Where can people find you and Soil Capital? Soil Capital's website is soilcapital.com. It's been a real pleasure to have you. Thank you for being here. No, thanks, Greg. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Derby podcast. I hope you got inspired to follow your mission with passion. If you liked this episode, please subscribe. I would also really appreciate it if you can leave a review on your podcast platform. It makes a huge difference and it will help others get inspired by these stories too. Till next time, Derby yourself.